0: This morning we conclude our study of Matthew's gospel, and today's scripture comes from Matthew 24. I'm going to read the first 42 verses, and then we're going to go to the end of chapter 28, the words of Jesus to his disciples after his resurrection, regarding their call to minister the gospel in this age. Matthew chapter 24. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came to him to call his attention to its buildings. "'Do you see all these things?' he asked. "'Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down.'" As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, his disciples came to him privately. "'Tell us,' they said, "'when will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age?' And Jesus answered, "'Watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah, and it will deceive many.'" And you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you're not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Then you'll be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you'll be hated by all nations because of me. And that time many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So when you see, standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand... And let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter of the Sabbath. For then there will be great distress unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and will never be equaled again. If those days had, been, had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. And at that time, if someone says to you, Look, here's the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you, There he is, out in the wilderness, do not go out. Or here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass the vultures will gather. Immediately after the distress of those days the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light the stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Then will appear the sign of the son of man in heaven and all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heaven to the other. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that the summer is near. And even so, when you see all these things, you know that the end is near, right, near uh, right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But about the day or the hour, nobody knows. Not even the angels in heaven or the son but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and given in marriage, up until the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing that would happen until the flood came and took them away. And that's how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a hand mill. One will be taken and the other left. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know... On what day your Lord will come. And now, the words of Jesus to his disciples after his resurrection regarding their call to minister the gospel in this age. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when he saw them, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. This morning, we're going to look at how Matthew ends his gospel speaking about the day of the Lord this passage that we read this morning, where Jesus speaks with deep apocalyptic poetry to describe the day of the Lord, following this is a handful of parables that I didn't read, but they're in the next chapter, and all of the parables are about being ready and working faithfully in, you know, in vineyards and the imagery of bridesmaids that are waiting for a bridegroom in the dark of night and the faithful use of someone's talents, waiting for the master to come home. All of these parables are given as a a picture of the readiness for this day that Jesus is talking about. Now, in my short lifetime of just under 50 years, there's been big changes about talk of the end of the world. If you were to go back 50 years, 100 years, people who talked about the end of the world, that was sort of talk that was reserved for a select group of religious people who were sort of pontificating about how the end might come. But today, whether you're an atheist or a theist, everybody talks about the end of the world. If you asked... uh, a group of scientists, if they felt there were any threats to humanity or the end of the human race, they would have answers. They, a panel of scientists wouldn't sit in silence and say, well, absolutely not. There's no threats to the end of the world or the end of humanity. There would be discussion about it. And there would be politicians that would talk about the ways that, that the world could come to an end. Whether it be military, nuclear war, all sorts of things. The idea of the end of the world, it dominates our literature. It dominates filmmaking. It's, it's, a, it's just sort of in the cultural waters now. All these images of hy- hypothesizing you know, natural disasters, AI, robots, zombie apocalypse, genetically altered you know, bio, bi- you know, bionic people, all, all sorts of fascinations about what's possible, what could possibly happen at the end of the age. So when we come to the Bible and we get this deep poetry speaking about the end of days, there's two ways we can handle this. I can teach this text this morning uh, in a very sensational way. I can take a sensational, impractical approach, which would be very exciting. You can sell a lot of books and you can pack out a lot of rooms talking about this in a sensational way. Or I can talk about this in a practical, pastoral way. Which is a lot less exciting, but I think when we look at what Jesus is doing and we zoom out from the text, we realize Jesus is actually being quite pastoral. And he's actually being quite practical. Now he's speaking... In in glorious ways, there's a lot of mystery that we have to just bend our knee to and sit in. But his goal is to be pastoral. This all starts because the disciples ask him a question. And he's answering the question. And he wants them to be able to do something with his answer. He doesn't want them to just go, huh, and walk away. And have no clue or concept on how they ought to live as a result of the answer that he gives them. So... I'm going to handle this not in a sensational way, which is going to disappoint some of you. I'm going to handle this in a pastoral way, because I think in my reading of the text, humbly, I think this is what Jesus is trying to do. So we're going to ask three questions about the day of the Lord. What does Jesus say about it? Why does Jesus speak about it? And how do we live in light of it? Firstly, what does Jesus say about it? if you read this whole passage, including the parables that follow in Matthew 25, about what are we supposed to be doing here, I think what Jesus says about the day of the Lord is that in the end, contrary to all appearances, justice and righteousness will prevail. That God will restore his beloved creation. He will raise us from death to enjoy it. In the end, God's initial plan will be accomplished that Christ will return and restore all things that doesn't look like that's going to happen when the disciples the original audience looked at their life and their circumstances and the last thousand years none of this looks as though in the end righteousness and God's goodness is going to prevail it actually looks like darkness is going to prevail and the same is true I think for us today now, I know that this seems, what I just said, seems like a very bland conclusion. Some of you may accuse me of being overly simplistic here. But inevitably, this conclusion is coming after the question of, will justice prevail? Because this whole, this whole thing starts with, them, with Jesus telling them the temple is going to be destroyed. And immediately their brains go from, well, if the temple is going to be destroyed, it must be the end of the world. And so Jesus is actually saying, actually, those are two different things. But both of these things are going to occur. If you're the original audience, which they were, you would be very concerned about justice prevailing under the crushing totalitarianism of Rome because you've been a victim of injustice your entire life, you had been living with a threat of violence your entire life, and so forth and so on for generations. And so if you've been living with this foreboding sense that darkness is greater, darkness will win, in the end... Only the good die young. It doesn't work out. If you've been living with the sense that darkness is greater, then this whole passage from Jesus is quite comforting. This doesn't strike us as comforting as moderns if we live relatively comfortable lives. This strikes us as jarring. But Jesus' intent here is to get his disciples to live in a very particular way, and we're going to get to that a little bit later. This, this phrase even, the day of the Lord, the day, this goes all the way back to the Exodus, the great deliverance, right? And after the great deliverance, the Israelites, they sing a song about how God is their warrior who, liber- who liberated them from evil and slavery and death in Egypt. And they referred to that deliverance as the day. And they sing about the day all through Exodus 13 and 15, and you can read about it. And The Exodus foreshadows our Exodus. It foreshadows all of humanity's Exodus. The Exodus of the nation of Israel foreshadows the ultimate Exodus of all the nations, of all the people of God around the world globally who trust in Christ, who in the end will be on the receiving end of restoration and not on the receiving end of judgment. And so this is a message of hope and encouragement for those who are clinging to God and trusting in God. All through the Old Testament, there is a cycle of oppression that is repeated. It starts all the way back in Genesis 11 when they build the first Babylon, when, when they build the city of, of mankind, the city of men, where they want to build a name for themselves apart from God. And they basically live under an oppression later of a true Babylon, but in between there were many Babylons, cities which created oppression, and that oppression was of their own making. As soon as we turn from God in favor of being our own gods... We end up living in a world where we don't love our neighbor. And that leads to all manner of evil and sin, suffering and sorrow. And so this cycle of being in need of deliverance, in need of the day, has been around since Genesis. And Jesus is picking up on the language of the day of deliverance. And he's speaking now about it in a very apocalyptic uh, sort of uh, uh, global sense when when he's going to come and return. And it will be the end of injustice. It will be the end of sorrow. It will be the end of oppression. The end of the things that make you and I look at our news feeds or out the window and get angry at the, at the sorrow and the sadness that we see in the world. It's going to be the end of all of this. And uh, right now, as Jesus is speaking about it, Rome is the new Babylon at the moment. And so, Jesus is describing this period of time that takes place between the advent, his, his first coming and his second first arrival and the return, that period in between, a technical term referring to the last days. In verse 29, he uses the phrase, after the distress of this age, that phrase age, the age that we're all living in now, as some theologians have put it, we are Easter people living in a Good Friday world. Now, I want to point out, without taking too much time, that all of these events that Jesus describes did happen within the lifetime of the apostles. He says there, this generation shall not pass away unless all these things happen. And again, I know you can sell a lot of books, and they've created an entire, you know, uh, franchise out of the idea that all these things are in the future. But the the fact of the matter is they all happen in the life of the disciples, and they've happened many times since. So ultimately, in AD 70... um, Well, in 8066, history teaches us that the Zealots, which were a group of uh, uh, Jews who hated the fact that the religious leaders were in bed with Rome, and they were like, look, you guys are just political puppets to Rome. And so the Zealots started attacking Jerusalem, and then Rome finished the job and burned Jerusalem in 8070. So that's just world history. So by 8070, that was the abomination of desolation that Jesus referred to, which was ultimately prophesied in Daniel that abomination of desolation, the desecration of the temple when Rome marches in and destroys things. There's archaeological finds of that temple, the destruction of that temple, and the stones are monstrous. Some of them are 12 feet, 16 feet long, and 8 feet wide. I can't even imagine how heavy one of those stones would have been. So you can imagine when Jesus says to his disciples, not one stone will be left on top of the other, that they're thinking, well, surely this is the end of the world. because that's a pretty high commitment to destruction, to topple those things down. And so... Uh, even in eighty forty five, 45, there was a famine that ravaged Judea. In AD 60, there was an earthquake that shook Laodicea, and so on and so forth to the fact where all of the things that Jesus talked about did occur within the lifetime of all of these hearers. Further, you, there's the talk about the messianic pretenders. And don't go out in the wilderness to listen to this anti-Messiah, anti-Christ. Matthew doesn't use that language, but John does. The one that is against the ways of God and and uplifting themselves these things happened as well you can read about them in acts chapter 5 two are mentioned there's Theudas and judas two uh, uh messianic figures that rise up to deliver israel from rome because we know of course jesus didn't deliver israel from rome like everybody thought he would and so other messiahs rose up and tried to do that they had movements one guy had about 400 followers and and uh, they eventually were killed and then the movements died off so in acts chapter 5 the religious leaders are saying of the disciples look these other messiahs have been killed and their movements died off. Don't worry about these disciples. We crucified that Jesus guy. This movement will die off. Well, minor caveat. Jesus Christ, we're not, we're not dealing with a missing body theory. Hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of people saw the resurrected Christ and therefore the true messiah, Jesus, the son of God, did not die off. And that's why in 2023, there's a few billion Christians around the world and we're all still worshiping him every week. But these these political messiahs were already there. In the first century, there was another one. You can read about him. His name is Simon uh, Kaaba. And he led a revolt in 132 AD against Rome. Dr. Samuel Lamerson was one of my profs that talked about about six leaders after Jesus that proclaimed that they were going to be the political messiahs of Israel. So all of this happened, and it continues to happen. So in the end, what is Jesus saying about this? He is saying, contrary to all appearances... Justice and righteousness will prevail. God will restore his beloved creation and he will raise us from death to enjoy it. Moving on to why does Jesus even speak this way? Why is Jesus even talking about all of this? Jesus is talking about this to instill confidence, to provoke perseverance, to infuse hope in his disciples, in his followers. We know that because if you keep reading into chapter 25, which I didn't take the time uh, to do today, it would have just been a, a tremendous amount of text to try and absorb. But all of the parables that Jesus tells about being ready and watchful and waiting and persevering and don't fall asleep, all of these parables converging like this prism just cascading the same theme multiple times are all about provoking perseverance and instilling confidence in the people that that following, what Jesus wants pastorally is for his people to hold on in the midst of struggle. Persevere in the suffering. Don't look out our windows at the terrible things that are happening in the world and lose our faith and lose our minds and lose our peace. He wants us uh, to uh, be able to live with a sense of uh, security and resilience in the midst of all of this. Again, it's difficult for you and I to relate to this in the same way the original audience would have because... Here in this part of the world, at this particular time in southern Ontario, we are enjoying relative safety and relative comfort. We do not wake up here at KW Redeemer fearing for our lives, fearing for provision. Your life and my life is not a 24-7 exercise in trying to ensure that we're, you know, diffusing a threat. There are believers in the world where that is their 24-7 reality. And for them, this text... Hits different. But the implications of all of this is that we would bask in the wonder of God's goodness. Not to just dissect and intellectualize this biblical poetry. It's to recognize that there are implications of the deliverance. It's that there is a day that is coming when Christ will return and renew all things. So Jesus' concern here is not to get them to grasp his timeline. His concern, by extension, isn't for us to grasp the timeline. Jesus is not trying to satisfy their curiosity, and he's certainly not trying to get his followers worked up and freaked out and anxious. He is using this deep poetry because his main concern is to ensure that his people are not anxious. His concern is to ensure that his followers, that we are not discouraged, but we are resilient and at peace, that we are not easily tossed by political unrest, or any other sort of unrest, that we are anchored, that we are not slumbering. His concern is that as the followers of Jesus, that we don't, like the frog in the pot, just sort of slowly become disciples of our culture, disciples of prevailing ideology, disciples of our cities. Because we're like, well... God doesn't seem to be real or good or wise or anything because the world is spiraling out of control. And after all, if he's in control, what, you know, if God is good and if he's in control and all powerful, then why are all these bad things happening? I cannot tell you how many times I've been asked that question, not simply by uh, those who do not share our faith, but by people in this room. Because we are continually drawing a direct parallel between the craziness that's happening in the world around us and the goodness or the wisdom or the relevance or the, the care of our God. We constantly do it. I do it, you do it. And the reason Jesus has given us this text is to say, I've got to dial you back to an anchor that can weather the storm and deal with your greatest sorrows and devastations and problems. And it's to cling and to trust and be watchful and waiting and do not be moved and do not be discouraged. So that when we look and we see all this pain and the injustice, this senselessness of suffering and the sort of the arbitrary, meaningless and, and, and horror of the way that, you know, people who quote-unquote deserve to have a blessed life don't and those who deserve utter judgment seem to be thriving and it just boggles our minds. But through all of this, we, we stay on message. We stay on mission. We're not easily moved and easily distracted. To the natural eye, despair is the appropriate response. Naturally speaking, despair and depression makes sense. When we look at the world and think about it deeply for longer than five minutes, despair makes sense. But with the eyes of faith, the people of God can look with honesty at the despair In using Christ's very realistic words here, pastoral words here, saying, you know what, I can persevere in the midst of all of this and I can live out my new humanity in the midst of all of this with a sense of hope because I have an assurance that in the end, justice and righteousness will prevail. That in the end, nobody who is oppressing and stepping on the necks of anybody else is getting away with any of it. And all of us are guilty of not loving our neighbor. All of us are not just victims of the hurt and the sorrow and the sadness in the world. We're contributors to it. Because we have all, in some way, not loved our neighbor. And I don't mean you've aggressively not loved them, although perhaps we have. But also we've lived with indifference to them. They're going through sorrow and pain and suffering and poverty and whatever. And we sort of live, like, indifferent to it. Right? Theologians call it the sin of omission. It means looking right at something that I should get involved in and just going, you know what, I don't need drama. I've got a busy life. I'm a North American. And it's very difficult for people to crack into my schedule. I'm highly committed to self-care because, after all, you have to care for yourself and love yourself. And would you look at that, we're five minutes past my scheduled self-care. Like, we sin, like we don't know we sin. Because we are highly committed to building walls of idolatrous comfort around our lives. So, it's not just looking out at the city and going, ooh, gross. It's looking in the mirror and going, wow, you know, that darkness is actually in me. Oh, God. So, this is why the Christian celebrates on Sunday morning. For those of you visiting, you know, exploring for your first Sunday. And you're like, wow, Abomination of Desolation Sunday. What a Sunday to pick. This is the good news of the gospel. We as Christians are not looking at the city and holding our nose and going, ha, 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 God loves us because we're better than they are. No, we're not. We're forgiven. And we trust Him and we cling to Him. And the difference between us as believers and the unbelievers is we trust in His forgiveness. We're clinging to His grace. And as a result of that, the indwelling power of the Spirit, we want to live in a new way while the old creation is rumbling along. We want to live into a new reality and a new humanity and that ends up look like, looking like giving our lives away when it doesn't make sense to give our lives away. And so this is why Jesus is saying all of this, because he wants his followers to live in a particular way and to not be freaked out by the distress that is all around them. And as I had mentioned, there was all these other messiahs that showed up, political messiahs, because of course, for many, their faith goes cold. Jesus isn't the king they want. I'm not interested in a king who will eventually renew all things. I want a king who will make my life great right now. And because this king has not given me the political deliverance that I want, or the economic stability that I want, or healed my physical body like I want, or done a number of things the way that I want, this is not the king that I want. Therefore, I am attracted now to follow other messiahs. The immediate contact to political messiahs, but you and I today as believers have multiple mini-messiahs that take many forms where we can give over our allegiance. Even though we may not intellectually deny Christ, the functional messiah enables us to dethrone him on a regular basis by turning to other things for comfort and rest. But really it's all sort of an anesthetic. We're just medicating the problem when the real core healing... Is to cling to the one who's going to carry us through all of these things, and this is why uh, the text that, that follows, the chapter that I didn't read, is all about: don't fall asleep, stay awake, don't get distracted by the darkness and say the bridegroom is not coming, and go out. Don't say, "Ah, oh, there's no need to be faithful with my talent and see my vocation as my ministry." I'm not going to bother with that. I'm going to just sort of bury my talent and just kind of hide back out of the city, and disconnect. That's why the text goes there. He wants us. To, he he is going to set all things right. He is going to be the delight of our deliverance. And the day of judgment is going to come. But the good news of the, judge, of the day of judgment is that for the, those who cling to Jesus Christ, our judgment day already happened. It happened at the cross. So we already have our verdict. The verdict is not guilty. We don't deserve that. That's why we celebrate grace. But that's the verdict. And because that's true and because there's assurance, this is the empowering and mobilizing force for us to live A new humanity in these days of distress. The other side of this, of course, is the uncomfortable words of Jesus about judgment and the the inevitability of life apart from God in all eternity, where Jesus speaks about hell. What does this all mean? Well, as we look at the text and zoom out and realize that what God has been doing from the beginning is, has been desiring to save those who do not want saving or desire saving, what we see is that in the end, hell is giving humanity over to what we ultimately want. Modern conversation on the street sounds like this. Why would a loving God send people to hell? But you never find in the scripture ever that the loving God is sending anybody anywhere. What you find is that the loving God could sit back and do nothing and he would be justified in doing it. But the loving God keeps getting involved in a desire to offer saving grace to those who don't deserve it. C.S. Lewis would say it this way, that the doors of hell are locked from the inside. In the book of Romans, when 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 Paul talks about judgment, he uses the phrase three times in the first chapter of Romans that God is giving them over to their desires. So you see, if you scoff at Jesus... And you scoff at God and you scoff at the cross and the resurrection and you say, I don't like this, therefore I don't believe it. For starters, that's not a great use of reason that something isn't true because you don't like it. But regardless of that, if, if to just reject Jesus and to reject God, to say, this is nonsense, I'm going to live my life for all intents and purposes as my own person, as my own God, which we've been doing since Genesis 3, then what, I, what I'm going to get in all of eternity is what I want now. I want life apart from God. I want that now, and that, that trajectory will carry on into forever. So the, so, so the renewal that is coming is for those who cling to Christ. The hell, if you will, the, the, the poetry Jesus often uses to describe the hell, is this torment apart from the renewal and the restoration of all things. This cognizant understanding that there is a renewal that I'm not a part of. He calls this hell. The forever and eternal sort of curving inward on the self. Which we're living into now even if we reject Jesus now. We're already in that trajectory. So my invitation for those of you who would be here who have not placed your faith in Christ would be consider now. Consider as you're listening to the rest of this, this sermon in the last couple minutes. Uh, that what we have in the Christian faith is a loving God who would be quite justified in just leaving us to our own devices. Like, just quite justified in letting the world just play itself out, like Greek fatalism. But what we actually have, his sovereignty does not manifest like him sitting back with his, like, a, like an evil Geppetto, you know, puppeteering things and sending this person here and sending this person there. It's not a good image of God's sovereignty. Rather, in his sovereignty, he's chosen to continually interrupt to draw us to his saving grace, including you sitting here this morning hearing these very words. He's moved thousands upon thousands of things in your life. For you to be here. This is just another form of him and his grace reaching out. That we are saved by the, by the grace of Jesus trusting in his resurrection and not by the, the loving and caring moral lives that we're living. Those things flow f- from joy. To the final thing this morning as I close. How do we live in light of all of this? I've talked about it already. We're united to Christ. His grace rescues us. It renews us. It enables us to persevere in hardship. So we approach all of life in light of this new humanity, so that as God's image bears, we intentionally aim to live in continuity with the renewal that Christ would bring. I already mentioned the parables, so I'm not going to get into that again. But that's the point of the parables that follow this. He's like, live in continuity with where this is headed. Every parable is pointing to that fact. Don't fall asleep. Stay a so what does So what does the preparedness look like? What does the watching look like? Well, we did read it when Jesus talks about the judgment relating it to the days of Noah. We read it there in verses 38 to 42. He says, two people are going to be in the field. Judgment comes and one remains and one goes. Two women are grinding in the mill. One comes and one is taken. In other words, what does preparedness look like? It looks like I'm living my life. I'm doing my vocation. But I'm doing it with a sense of joy and faith and trust in God. I'm living in the city and I'm going about. I'm not seeing that there's a disconnect between my faith and the things that I'm up to. I'm just living I'm, I'm living out my joy amongst my my people in my neighborhood in my city and you'll notice that the ones that are that are left are the people of God and the ones that are taken and removed are the ones that do not enjoy the renewal that is coming that's what happened in the days of Noah it was Noah and his family that stayed who was swept away it was those that were worshiping other gods and doing abhorrent things to their children and the women they were taken away but it was, the, it was the family of God that remained. I know that an entire cinematic rapture universe has been created by the opposite of that. Like, oh no, it's the, it's the Christians that are zapped away and go to heaven. And then all the cars crash and the planes crash because all the Christians are gone and the world's a mess. That's it, my friends. That's, that's literally the opposite of what the text says. I made a lot of money off of flipping that around the other way. But it's the people of God who stay. Some of you right now are like, well, oh my goodness, my world has been like I got to rewatch Kirk Cameron how did this guy get it wrong it's wrong it's all wrong because if it was right then going and recycling your cans and loving your neighbor and feeding the poor and none of it matters because if in the end the world's going to blow up what are we doing but what we're actually doing is living in a continuity of what God is going to bring with Christ's return which is renewal and so therefore everything we do matters all of our vocation is ministry And so we live this out in the proclamation of the gospel. Yes, the declaration of Jesus Christ, who is Lord, who has went to the cross for the forgiveness of our sin and rose again on the third day, and we trust him, but also it is all at one with our vocation our lips and our lives in this congruence and in this harmony. And so happy Mother's Day, because that includes motherhood and caring for your children. See, you didn't think that the abomination of desolation was a good text for Mother's Day, but I would argue it's a tremendous text for Mother's Day, because suddenly mothering matters and caring for children matters, and all matters as we live into a continuity of what Christ is going to ultimately bring. So may we go into the city and live this out in great joy. Let's pray.